BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. Republican Olympian and reality TV star Caitlyn Jenner has made it official this morning. She's filed initial paperwork to run for governor of California in a highly anticipated recall election. In a statement, Jenner criticized career politicians who she says have, quote, overpromised and underdelivered. The recall of Governor Gavin Newsom isn't official yet, but is fully expected to qualify for the ballot. The signature validation deadline is this coming Thursday. It will likely have a crowded field. Other Republicans who've thrown their hats into the ring include former San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner and businessman John Cox, who lost the governor's race to Newsom in 2018. California will soon be getting a new attorney general. The state legislature confirmed Oakland Assemblyman Rob Bonta's appointment to the position yesterday. KQED's Katie Orr has more. Bonta will become the state's first Filipino-American to serve as attorney general. He's replacing Javier Becerra, who resigned to become U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary. Bonta has served in the Assembly since 2012. As the state's top cop and top attorney, Bonta will oversee a wide range of issues, including oversight of police departments, gun violence prevention, and combating hate crimes in the state. Once he's sworn in, Bonta said he'll push back against those in power who are overreaching or abusing it. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. Twelve governors, including Governor Newsom, are urging the Biden administration to set strict standards for a faster transition to clean vehicles. KQED science reporter Laura Clivens has that story. The governors want all new cars and light trucks sold to be zero emission by 2035. They're asking for medium and heavy-duty vehicles to follow suit 10 years after that. They'd like funding, too. Investments in charging and fueling infrastructure, grants to help turn over fleets, tax incentives, rebates, and access to zero-emission vehicles for underserved communities. The letter also says there are jobs in electric vehicles, noting these cars are California's top export and have created tens of thousands of jobs in the state. For The California Report, I'm Laura Clivens. Dozens of unaccompanied migrant children began to arrive last night in Long Beach, where a temporary shelter has been set up for them in the city's convention center. Here's Long Beach Mayor Robert Garcia speaking at a news conference yesterday. It is incredibly important that in this moment, we treat every single child with compassion, with kindness, and with love. The site is being run by the Department of Health and Human Services, which has set up these temporary shelters to help deal with an influx of unaccompanied migrant children crossing the border. The Long Beach Convention Center will be able to house as many as 1,000 children at a time. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Leaders of the University of California and the California State University systems announced yesterday that their students and employees will need proof of vaccination against COVID-19 to return to campus this fall. From KPCC, Adolfo Guzman Lopez reports. UC and Cal State put a big condition on that requirement. Vaccines will be required only if the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approves at least one vaccine, and vaccines must be adequately available. None of the three current vaccines have FDA approval, and there's no set date for that to happen. The policy would affect over a million UC and Cal State students and employees at 33 campus locations. The announcement makes these the largest educational institutions in the nation to require vaccinations for a return to instruction. For the California Report, I'm Adolfo Guzman-Lopez in Los Angeles. A USC infectious disease specialist tells KPCC full approval of vaccines isn't likely for at least another year and a half. Meanwhile, officials at Stanford University say they'll also require students who come back to campus this fall to be fully vaccinated. In an email, the university's provost says students will be able to request exceptions to the requirement for medical or religious reasons as long as they're tested regularly. Stanford officials haven't said whether the same requirement would be made for faculty and staff. The university says that if students are having trouble getting vaccinated at home, officials will work to help get them vaccinated near campus upon their return. Staying on the vaccine story, for the first time in weeks, California has actually seen a slight dip in the number of people getting vaccinated. According to data compiled by the San Jose Mercury News, the number of daily doses administered in the state dropped by about 8% last week to 360,000. That's down from mid-April when the seven-day average peaked at about 391,000 daily shots. Counties across the state have reported a large number of appointments open at their vaccination sites this week. A little more than a third of Californians are fully vaccinated. This week's conviction in the trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd has one Californian questioning why such a volume of video evidence was so necessary in the case at all. USC journalism professor Alyssa Richardson joins me now. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Video evidence has been hailed as one of the keys to securing Derek Chauvin's conviction. What is your take on the sheer volume of evidence it took to secure accountability in this case? I think that is one of the most disturbing features of this case is that 
um, while we have what legal analysts have called the star witness of the case in the form of this video, the fact that we needed it in the first place is, I think, something that we should be investigating. Maybe the questions we should be asking now, in addition to where do we go from here, are why we needed um, African-Americans to pre-litigate their cases of police brutality in the first place. And it's really this longstanding belief in inherent criminality, the stereotype uh, within African-Americans that has made most people say, show me the proof, you know, show me that you did not deserve uh, your own demise. And it's really caused this volatile um, and what I uh, wrote diabolical cycle of witnessing where we're requiring the family to produce proof that there was some kind of wrongdoing. We're then requiring them to pass it over to the court of public opinion for journalists and scholars like me to pick it over and analyze it. And so while I'm not at all saying that we should do away with them, especially in the uh, official legal system and context, I am saying that we should limit the circulation amongst us, amongst regular people. And I think that would reduce a great deal of trauma, not just for the family members, but for ordinary viewers. This is such an important point. Um, I want to ask you a question about well, from one journalist to another, I think back to when I started my career, the war in Iraq had just begun. And we, you know, were basically told, I worked at a local TV station here in California, you know, you can't put certain images on television. And I do think there's an argument to be made that by sanitizing the visuals that people see, that they don't fully understand what's really happening. I do think that to some extent, the, you know, the, the awful imagery that we have confronted in these videos and photographs as well, for a certain segment among us that didn't understand what daily life is like for people in the black community. I think that that really helped turn the tide to some extent. And that's perhaps why we saw white people in the streets alongside people of color last year. Is there any merit to that argument? in your view. For sure. I think people's eyes needed to be open last summer. And I think that's why you rightfully point out that there was a multi-ethnic coalition that was outdoors, you know, endangering their own lives amid a, a global pandemic to really speak out for this. But I think this is a real turning point in how we view police brutality cases and why I say we don't really need any more visual proof. If anyone needs any additional video beyond this summer to prove that they should be behind the cause of finding alternative ways to take care of communities, then I think that that is, you know, a real thing that they need to, to think hard on is why that this community, why African-Americans are the only ones who are required to produce this kind of video to elicit sympathy. And, and so I think that that is what I'm calling for here is that journalists consider Black victims to have the same humanity as white victims. Well, we so appreciate you lending your perspective to us on this very important issue. Alyssa Richardson is a journalism professor at USC. Thanks again. Thank you. On the Central Coast, Highway 1 in Big Sur will reopen today, two months ahead of Caltrans schedule. A section of the roadway at Rat Creek had been closed since late January after it collapsed. From our partner station, KAZU, Erica Mahoney reports. It's been three months since a debris flow washed out both lanes of Highway 1 on Big Sur's south coast. It created a 150-foot chasm in the scenic ribbon of roadway. Since then, crews have been on the job seven days a week, 
says Kevin Dravinsky with Caltrans. Amazing ballet of excavators and equipment, always in motion, kind of like a heartbeat, always going on. Thanks to their work, plus favorable weather, Caltrans plans to reopen Highway 1 today at noon. Crews repaired the roadway by filling the chasm with dirt and constructing a new road on top. Diana Ballantyne is general manager of Fernwood Resort in the heart of Big Sur. Caltrans always tries to underpromise and overdeliver, and they definitely did that this time. She says the biggest challenge during the closure was the public perception that Big Sur had fallen into the ocean. While the closure prevented people from traveling the entire coastline, people could still access Big Sur from the north. She looks forward to the community being connected again. And just not having to answer the questions of how to get to Big Sur. (laughs) As the road reopens, she reminds visitors that Big Sur is not a series of Instagram photo ops. It's an experience. For the California Report, I'm Erica Mahoney in Monterey. And now to a preview of our sister show, The California Report's weekly magazine. This week, mourning the loss of a beloved California poet. If you have trouble finding yourself, start looking elsewhere. The sky, not only is it not the limit, it opens and dares you to look up who you are. As the state's poet laureate, Al Young mentored emerging writers from rural communities and juvenile detention centers. These 12 and 13-year-olds were living in a a very threatened world. And poetry gave them an opportunity to express things that they found inexpressible. Young was also a novelist and a lover and scholar of jazz and the blues who beautifully intertwine music and verse. Oh, lazy, hazy sky of summer, what brings you here in April? The sky is battling, too. Give us Slim Harpo. The sky is crying... Look at the tears roll down the street. Al Young died last weekend. He was 81. You can hear more about his life and his connection to our show over the years on the California Report magazine. By the way, the show is up for a huge award, the Webby for Best Podcast for the episode A Butterfly With My Wings Cut Off about a transgender asylum seeker. Please cast your vote for our colleagues at the California Report magazine at webbyawards.com. And that is the California Report for this Friday, April 23rd. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Danny Bringer, with assistance from Seal Muller. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin and Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. Our director of news is Vinnie Tong. Our executive editor is Ethan Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Lily Dramali. Have a great weekend, everyone. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone, everywhere. And California Healthcare Foundation, ensuring the voices of Californians are heard in California's decisions about healthcare on the web at chcf.org slash voices. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. 
every week we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.